This podcast includes unapologetic logic and reason and may not be suitable for all audiences. In a world full of nonsense, he's been called the voice of uncommon common sense. He sees the abnormal that many find normal. Author and award-winning speaker, he is Chris Okay, uh, finally here, as promised, with the author of Bullied Behind Bars, a gay Christian Trump supporter goes to prison, Matthew Melvin. Welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to have you here. Uh, What we said we were going to start with discussing today was a little bit about your background and your upbringing. It's a really interesting book. You go into a lot of things, what it's like to be in jail, how you got in jail. Uh, But really, I think the crux of your story, I'll give you an opportunity to explain this better, is really the failures of the criminal justice system. And I've seen some of that firsthand. And uh, so I think it's really a fascinating story on a multiple of different fronts I hope we can get into today. Uh, But why don't we start, you you end up in jail. We know that part of the story from the title. And you're obviously questioning uh, the effectiveness of the system and certainly not the first person to bring up those questions. And so it'll be interesting to hear that from your perspective. But let's talk a little bit about uh, what landed you in jail and how you ultimately got there. Um, And let's start with your upbringing. You talk in the book about, you refer to your mother as a nagging mother, which is not a new phenomenon either. And you talk about your father and his military service. Um, I'm interested what branch, but how was your relationship with your mother and father as it relates to the book and and the story? My mother was a very controlling individual, um, somewhat emotionally abusive, uh, condescending, and I never felt like I could do anything right. Um, Whether it was when I sold Cutco, uh, going in people's homes to sell a a knife company that was based in only on New York, um, or any other job that I had, I never felt like I was uh, worthy of uh, being called her son. Uh, my father was in the Marines. He served in Vietnam. He received a Purple Heart, and he received Agent Orange um, as a result of being in that environment. Um, and there's some speculation that I may have gotten some of that Agent Orange, um, and we tried to use that as a mitigating uh, circumstance in my the second time I. Uh, got charged with went to, with the federal crimes. However, the, the government didn't really buy into it. Matt, uh, I think you said in the book, uh, are you autistic, did you say? I am, yes. Autistic. What does that mean to be autistic, in your words? Uh, it means that you're a little bit slower to pick up on things, that you may misinterpret people's cues, um, you may misalign what somebody's trying to say to you as being something else. Do you know what your dad did in the Marine Corps? You know what his job was by any chance? Uh, I don't know specifically. Um, I know he served in the Vietnam War and in the Marines. Um, I had a funny feeling you were going to say that, by the way. You didn't say in the book what branch. You know, I'm a Marine combat veteran. and I, I do. I could just kind of tell from reading the book, and I was like, I bet you any chance he's got a, a Marine father. And, you know, there really is a phenomena where uh, sometimes children of Marine fathers struggle. And uh, we don't talk about it a whole lot from the Marine Corps side. 
yeah, but it's something that could be talked about a little bit more. Um, do, do you think that the autism, uh, that there's a tie between the Agent Orange and the autism? I do. What makes you say that? Well, I'm not a psychiatrist, um, but I think that certainly that could have led to the autism. Uh, and certainly um, the impulsiveness that I have um, still exists today. I, I have to really watch out on the impulsiveness. Um, that doesn't go away. And there's no, you know, I've tried many medications. Uh, I've found from Prozac to um, other drugs that they are not effective, that you're all you're doing is making me uh, emotionless and, and just stale and boring. And I'm a very lively individual. Um, so I've, I've tried many drugs, but they, to me are not effective. I, I don't want to change who I am personally, you know, my right. personality. What right. I want to do is control the impulses and there is no drug in the world that will control that. I just have to make a decision that the impulsiveness of this, the decisions that I've made in the past are not worth it. And I need to um, let that go. And have you learned it, that, Matt? Do you think you have a little, how old are you now? I'm 40 years old. 40, do you feel like you have more self-control now? I do. Um, I've learned that, you know, revenge and, and being retaliatory has not bode well for me. And it, it really is a cancer. It just sits in you and festers. Um, and that's why I found that, you know, I started going to church. Uh, I started going about six years ago. And I've been slowly becoming more involved in that. Um, I find that the more time I have, I, I occupy the less free time, the less time I have to think about um, retaliatory things. Matt, do you feel mentally ill? I don't know. No. I mean, because what you're describing, I, I could say all those same things about myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I sometimes wonder if I'm not autistic, right? <laughs> There's right. different ways this stuff manifests. So, because um, I think about retaliation all the time too. What's your relationship like with your parents today? I would say it's significantly better. Good. Um, my mom still worries. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but on Father's Day, uh, an individual that I served with in prison actually showed up at our house um, with one bag and he walked to our house, rang the doorbell, and uh, it was about 5.30 at night and he thought that he was going to come live with me. Um, my information was out there because of various uh, outlets like Shelburne News, and um, so my address was out there. And I your mom's worried about that kind of thing. She's worried about this individual coming back and doing what, harm. What made, what, what made him think he could stay with you? Uh, I don't know. We played cards a couple of times in prison. Um, I have a feeling that he's gay. I don't know that. Um, but, you know, nobody. Uh, first of all, let's take a step back. 
it, when you're on supervision, you have to fill out a, you have to get authorization of where you're going to live. And so you can't live in a home where there's a convicted felon. Now, there are a few exceptions. If the, if the, the sibling, if it's a sib, direct sibling, then that doesn't apply. But you can't live directly with a convicted felon. The office, the office of uh, supervision, probation, and parole will not authorize that. Well, let's get to some more of those details in a few minutes. I want to focus on your story, though. So, um, you know, as a child, you didn't have, you had a strained relationship. You could categorize that differently, I suppose, with your parents, right? Uh, which is, isn't all that uncommon either. Um, matter of fact, I ended up in the Marine Corps at 17 because I was rebelling against my parents and told them to kiss off and walked out the door and <laughs> went into the Marine Corps. Um, you know, so we all kind of go through those things. But anyway, you ended up in some trouble that I believe started with uh, your work at the car dealership. Correct. Yes. Tell me the story, Matt. And I and um, if you don't want to say, uh, just tell me you don't want to say, but you don't really make it clear to me in the book what what the crime was that originally got you in trouble. I think you admitted that you, you made a mistake, right? Correct. What so I worked crime? at a car dealership, Freedom Nissan, on mm -hmm. Shelburne Road in South Burlington. Uh, I was a car salesman, uh, and they did not pay me for commissions that I earned. And I thought that I would um, sell the car to a um, to sell the car online, and I ended up selling it to an undercover police officer, I believe, in North Carolina. And you I'm kept the mistaken. money? Uh, no, I never got any money. Um, what? They, no, I never. They caught me stealing the car, and then they charged me with. Um, oh, okay. So when you when you took the car off the lot, correct? That was uh, auto theft. Yes, absolutely. Is that yes. a, is that a felony? Yes. And that's a that's a pretty grand theft auto. Yeah, which is pretty significant, right? And um, operating the vehicle without the owner's consent as well. All right. So I got you. So you're working there. Um, you're not the the best with self control. How old were you at this time when you were in the car? So it was 2004. Um, so 25. Yes. 25 ish. Yeah. All right. So you're you're in your mid 20s. You're a little rambunctious, and uh, these guys aren't paying your commissions. You get a little ticked off. Um, now we're not hearing their side of the story, but either way, we are where we are at this point, and. Um, you decide, you know what, I'm going to take this car and I'm going to go sell it to get even, basically, right? To Correct. make good, to make things right. Yes. And so the police take that and they decide that they're going to charge you with this felony crime. Now, Matt, um, had you had any other brushes with the law or any, uh, not even a record, but you had any involvement with the police or was there any reason your employer would have that you were doing any other kinds of theft or nefarious activities while you were there? Was that just limited to this? Other than traffic infractions, um, there was a time that um, I received a ticket that a uh, officer not not never so nothing serious. Correct. Traffic. All right. So you've never been in trouble before. You're basically a disgruntled employee. Correct. Right? And you, 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 you do this act, which is obviously illegal. You know that, right? Correct. Um, you know, there's other ways that you would have to pursue that. Uh, but I understand your dilemma. So now the, the police are involved. Was there never a point in that process where either the employer said, hey, I, I, you know what? I'm just, just get this guy out of here. Give me my car back. I don't want to press charges. 
Or was there ever a point where the police were like, listen, I mean, this is not a career car criminal, you know, car thief we're talking about here. You know, this is an employee dispute. The guy got a little carried away. Was there any point in that process where anybody was not looking at this like a capital crime? Absolutely not. They just went right for blood. Correct. Wow. Fascinating. So you you go to court and you're convicted, obviously. Correct. What was the sentence? Uh, A year and a half in prison and uh, supervision, I think, for three years, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. You know, this is fascinating to me because I know we've had cases here in Pennsylvania where I had a good friend, business owner, um, very trusted long-term employee. Uh, They believe stole, I don't know the full amount, probably $300,000 in cash. I don't think there was any prison time. Interesting, right? The difference in treatment there. Um, I don't want to make this podcast about the prison time, um, but you were treated poorly. Uh, which you detail in the book. And I think that that story is, you know, best. if you want to hear that, go get the book and, and read all about that. And, and you get the answers there because you, you definitely go into all the details there. Um, but you were basically getting ignored and treated unfairly out of prison, in prison, right? Uh, by the guards, uh, the fellow prisoners alike. I can tell you, Matt, in reading your book and my own experience, I have, I think, a pretty good idea of exactly what happened. You know, with your personality and this autism, whatever that label means, um, you know, it, it tends to create an environment of, of agitation and conflict around with others too, right? That miscue and timing. And especially in a prison environment, as I was reading your story, I'm thinking, I can understand exactly how this happened. What I don't understand is, if I'm hearing your story right, and this is the first prison experience, that there was never, and I'm looking at this, and and I can clearly see, hey, this guy needs to be removed from this environment, and this needs to be handled differently. Um, Now that you told me the car theft story, probably starting from that point, you would have thought that a reasonable judge would have gotten involved and said, hey, all right, hold on that. What's really going on here? Okay, Matt, I'm going to give you a fine and I'm going to put you in the jail for 30 days as a gift. And if you come back here, you know, I don't know what all their options are, but if I see you back here, you know, you're going to do the two years that I should have gave you. So get your your act together and knock this off. I'm thinking it should have been something along those lines. Correct. Um, We tried to get into mental health court, um, which is a program that the state offers. Um, which would have deferred the sentence, and I would have had to show up to court, I believe, on a weekly or monthly basis to check in. And as long as I was doing everything, I wasn't picking up any charges, I would be allowed to go home. Uh, However, that did not happen. And the judge that oversaw that was a man that you may know, Judge Jeffrey Crawford, who was also my sentencing judge in the federal case. He had, he and a man named Bob Wolford, who I saw for years at the um, Howard Mental Health Facility uh, for psychiatry, um, both had weigh-in and they both felt that I did not meet these standards, uh, whatever those may be, to qualify to be in the mental health court. I'll tell you, Matt, um, you know, I'll tell you this story. Uh, we had a neighbor, elderly. And, um, 
where we used to live. They were very close to us where we lived in town. And the husband developed dementia. And uh, I want to give you a little uh, uh, perspective from the people that don't have autism, right? Um, In this case, it was dementia. Um, But behaviorally speaking, the result is kind of the same for the people around you. Different condition, different, you know, um, way of, of obviously displaying it, but um, kind of the impact on the people around him is kind of the same. And uh, the, the wife had come to me. Now, there, he was uh, in his mid-80s. She was in her late 70s. And she came to me at one point and said, my husband's hitting me. And we said, well, you need to report that. He's, we knew he'd developed dementia. Well, finally, one night it escalated to the point where um, he hurt her. And uh, she came to us for help, which we did. And um, I was there to calm him down and while the police came. And I'll tell you, Matt, there was a point where his personality changed. And I'll tell you what, my blood pressure and anger level went through the roof. And I've had this happen before. And I think that's what was happening to you. What I found, and I don't, I don't know you, we spoke a little bit by phone, and now we're doing this interview, and I read your book and your story. Um, but I think that people such as yourself can be very charismatic and convincing. And also because of the way you uh, interact can also really make people extremely angry, agitated. And the result of that is exactly, you know, fall into the pattern. You probably, they want to be more retaliatory. Oh, we, you know, we, we have to protect everybody from this person. And, and maybe some of that's true. We'll talk through the story a little more because I don't think that applies in your case. Um, but people grow angry, bitter, resentful, and I can see that demonstrated in your story. And I could see how that could happen. I still, I don't want to work through the story. I remain amazed that nobody in that process, especially in this system, a lawyer, somebody had the, the maturity and the uh, emotional intelligence to look at the situation and see that something is wrong. So, so you, you steal the car, if you will. I, I don't even really call it stealing the car. I mean, I, I know what you did was wrong. And if I was the business owner, I would have called the police on you. Um, but I think I may have dropped the charges in that case. I, I, don't, I can't say for sure, but you would think somebody along the lines would. You go to jail, you get your sentence, you get out, right? Um, and it was a horrific stay. You know, it would be for anybody. And like I said, the details of that are, are in the book and, and a fantastic story. Now you, you, you do your time, you did the crime, you did the time, and now you get out. But you got a problem, right? Because you got a record. And pick up the story from there. You get out of jail, you're on uh, parole. Uh, probation. Probation, sorry, yeah. Right. And, uh, and so what happened from there? You got to live, right? You need a place. I got to live and find a job and find an employer that will hire me despite uh, a criminal record. And it was, trust me, it was a lot easier then than it is now um, because background checks have been so prolific. Um, The main reason is because uh, of schools and um, having people with sex crime um, convictions not uh, being anywhere near children. And so as a result, it's really manifested into almost all white collar um, companies. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a liability thing. So you're out on probation and it's a condition of the probation that you have to work, correct? Yes. And, but at the same time, it's hard to get employment with a record. Very hard. And like I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, 
it was a lot easier back then than it is today. It's very, very difficult. So what kind of jobs were available to you then? Uh, bagging groceries at a, at a, at a store, uh, cashiering, uh, delivering pizza, uh, very low paying jobs, didn't offer any benefits. Um, you know, I was a hospitality, uh, I've received my bachelor's degree in, in hospitality and I'm not saying it's beneath me, but I was certainly looking for something better, uh, a career. Right. You wanted to, to, to further yourself like anybody else. Right. It's hard to produce a living on the they're great part-time jobs, I guess, but not in terms of careers so much. And right. so you had a dilemma. So uh, what happened? Tell us the story. You got in more trouble, right? So uh, I started uh, working for companies under other people's names and then depositing checks in other people's names um, because a background in check was involved with each of these companies. So let's just go through the, with the reality of that a second. I found this to be fascinating Correct. in the sense that it's, I'm kind of shocked that it's much of a crime because I don't understand where the victim is in this. Um, so let's say that you go, um, you apply for a job in my name is what you were doing, right? Uh, yes. Uh, I already had the social security number and the date of birth. Through, How'd you get that? Um, asking other people to provide me with that information and saying that I could help them find a job. So, you, okay. So you would come to me and you would say, Hey, Chris. You need right. to, I can help you find a job. Give me a little information here and I'll see what I can get for you. Yes. And so they would give it to you thinking that you were going to help them get a job. Right. And instead you use that information to apply for a job yourself using their name and social security number. Right. So it wasn't just other people. It was also my brother. Gotcha. And so what is the ramification to the person on the receiving end of that? Is there tax consequences and things like that? There would. However, the amounts that I was making were so low that it probably wouldn't even fall in the threshold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in my attorney, you know, when I was arrested, um, my attorney who, well. The, what did the, you get the, arrested for in that case? Um, identity theft and um, money laundering. So Matt. Um, you know, my big thing is, is the truth, right? Um, were you doing anything else nefarious along, and then along that time, or was it only what we just discussed that you needed a job? So you were desperate and you use that social security number only to get a job. So you may be creating a tax liability to the individual, but also contributing to their social security. So I guess that kind of goes both ways, not really any real harm done to anybody, um, were you doing anything else that would have caused harm to that individual? I was not. In fact, when it came time for my sentencing, the government was unable to produce one single victim and they were unable to show any financial loss to that person. Unbelievable. And my attorney's 32 years of practicing law, he has never seen this. Usually the victim has had uh, had significant financial loss and can document that. Man, how many, how many people are we talking about? How many people did you do this to? I don't know. I would say many. between 15 and 20. It's a pretty good number, but, and, and why so many? I mean, how many jobs were you getting with all these names? 
I was working for 10 or 15 different companies. Doing what? Uh, merchandising, third-party work. What is that? Remote work. Uh, stocking shelves, um, putting up signage. In stores. In stores. Uh, I was remote, so the employer never met me. They didn't know me. They didn't. So what would they do? They would ship you the signs or whatever, and it would be your job to go to the stores in your area? Correct. I Put it, it up and take photos. Okay. And were you, were you doing the work? I was, yes. Wow. And so this, so this really, to me, um, you know, I can understand that you would be charged if caught, uh, but it's, you got sentenced again for the, this wasn't the federal case. We're still at the state level, right? No, this is the federal case. Oh, this is the federal case. Okay. Right. Okay. So what happened was the state took it on. Uh, however, the government, the, the U.S. federal thought that they, because of the identity theft yeah. and because of the prior issues with lying and being deceptive, that they would like to take this on. Matt, I'll have to tell you, and I'll say this for the people watching and listening to this. Uh, I didn't believe you, what you wrote in the book. I, I thought that there was something missing. I really did. As I was reading it, there's something he's not telling us here. Uh, and I did a little research and your story, as best I can tell, checks out. This blows my mind. So for that crime, you get strung up on federal identity theft charges. Right. Which if, I was con which if I was convicted, I would get a mandatory two-year sentence on each of the counts. And I believe it was three or four. I'm, I'm not sure how, exactly how many charges they, they gave you me get, with identity You didn't get convicted theft. in federal court? You won that? So, no, I got convicted, but I pled to okay. money laundering, which did not care. And uh, how did it lying turn to a probation officer. Right. So I oh, I forgot. Well. That's a piece of the story we missed. So you had a yes. job at one point you liked, right? Tell us yes. the story. So I was under uh, supervision. Uh, this is in 2016. Uh, I'm sorry. I was on pretrial release, which means um, I had to um, work, and I was, but I was still under supervision, even though I hadn't been convicted. Um, so I was under the supervision of a, a woman named Parrish Gibson, and we had a, you know, an, an okay relationship. Um, I would work and check in with her every so often at, at, at her discretion when she felt that I needed to check in. Uh, in about November, um, she and the U.S. Attorney, Michael Drescher, along with uh, John Schroeder, uh, decided that they wanted to ask the judge to it, add an additional condition of my supervision in that if I were to get a job, I would need to tell any prospective employer the ramifications of hiring a convicted felon, which in and of itself would guarantee that I would not get any job. So as a result, and the judge, John Conroy, who's the magistrate judge, bought into their nonsense and agreed to this. As a result, it would guarantee that I wouldn't find a job. So what I did was I pretended to be this employer and called uh, Parrish Gibson pretending to be uh, 
Prinback Cosmos, Cosmos Prinback, sorry, uh, Cosmos Prinback, and saying that Matthew Melvin had told him that I was a convicted felon and I was okay with that. And of course, she figured out that it was not this person and charged me with lying to a, a probation officer, which landed me in jail. Matt, uh, how much money were you making at that time? Annual? Um, I would say around fifteen or 20000 All total? All total, yes. From 20 different employers at that time or do you have yeah i mean the the work is is not constant it's uh sporadic based on projects and the companies needing folks and you know at that time they were probably paying eight to twelve dollars an hour understood okay so this is almost practically a contract labor agreement these you know part-time as needed basis correct you might might go you know for this particular company to put signs up in stores in your area you know, six or eight hours at 10 bucks an hour. And you were just doing a bunch of that. Right. And, and they ran you up on federal charges for that. Correct. They went through five grand juries in the state of Vermont and finally inevitably got uh, an indictment against me, probably spent uh, a half a million dollars. Um, because as you know, the government will indict a, a ham sandwich. And in when they when the government wants to try to charge somebody, they will just present anything and everything they have, whether it's admissible or not at trial, and hope that a grand jury will come back with a indictment. It's unreal to me, Matt, uh, that this all went on. And like I said, as best I could through my research, I did verify this story. Um, You talk about your church involvement a little bit. Let me read a little excerpt from the book here. The Wilbers seem different from the volunteers from various church groups that I had attended in the past. The Wilbers seemed concerned and fought to see me as often as possible. They saw potential in me that I had lost for quite some time. I had stayed in contact with Mo and Diane after I got out. I've now been attending their church twice a week religiously. Uh, Is that still the same today? It is. Their church is in Swansea, New Hampshire. I live in Shelburne, Vermont, it's a two and a half hour drive, one way on a good day to go down and back. Um, I met Mo and Diane when I was at Cheshire County, uh, which was one of the facilities I was housed at. And um, really came to understand that these two individuals could help me a lot more than the 20 something mental health providers that I had seen for the last 36 years and had gained nothing. In fact, during that time, while I was seeing therapists, I was still committing crimes. That's fascinating. I want to come back to that at the end. You talk quite a bit in the book about what it means to be homosexual. Uh, Some of the hypocrisy I find Interesting. I talk about it a lot on the podcast. You know, t- today we live in this uh, area era where we seem to be highly sympathetic to homosexuality, and um, I don't feel homos- uh, or I don't feel uh, sympathetic to, to anything really. Uh, in term in, in that regard, I should say I'm sympathetic to things, but not in terms of how somebody feels sexually. You you feel the way you feel. You're born the way you're born, 
or whatever the case may be. And and the danger in that, I think, is that you see there's a people out there that go, oh, that the you know, oh, the person's gay, and so they must be nice. And they say, oh, that's not always the case. And uh, you find that as a homosexual person too. Right. Right. Uh, a lot of details about that um, in in the book um, that you go through there. Do you think that? Um, in your opinion, do you feel that the way you were treated by the criminal justice system was uh, impacted because you were gay? You feel you were discriminated against? In the prison atmosphere, yes. By the other uh, inmates? By other inmates, and there were several instances where I was put in solitary confinement because other inmates told the guards that I was propositioning them. Yeah. Now, uh, you, so you you were on the receiving end of a lot of anger and hostility, and in some cases, sheer brutality. Um, so that was part of it. It was the other piece that I haven't spoken about was that I would constantly file grievances, which only irritated the staff about different things that were going wrong, and it it only angered them. So I became a target a because of the grievances. And then because of my being yeah. homosexual. You know, that's another thing. And I, and I don't know, you know, most people don't expect to find themselves in the criminal justice system. But I think um, in terms of the courts and, and dealing with these things generally, um, I think that there's a piece of information that people don't understand. And that is that the system is connected, meaning that the judges are connected to the prosecutors, to the police and to the prison right. staff. Right. And, you, you know, in some ways you say, well, that's very nefarious and underhanded, uh, but there's no way around it. And the reason for that is because they work together every day. The police are the ones bringing the people to the DA and they're the ones bringing it in front of the judge. I know because uh, not in this type of capacity, but in a different type of capacity, I worked in that environment. And I had a certain reputation with the judges, which I well earned because I operated ethically and they knew that. Right. And what that tra- and I believe that most people in these systems are now. I'll be the first to tell you, having worked in government, that there are people who are not. <laughs> That's a fact. You have people that are incompetent. You have people that um, you know get bitter. Some of them, um, uh, you know, narcissists. Uh, you know, all types of psychological issues that haven't been diagnosed, and they're allowed to work in government, but not allowed to work in the private sector because of their record. Um, so you have that. But I believe that most of the people are doing a good job and they have good credibility. And, and I'll tell you, Matt, you know, I, I used to, to say this to my wife with the credibility that I had. If I went into court, if I if I had a vendetta against you when I was working that arena and if I wanted to act on that, you were going to have a problem <laughs> because right. I had credibility in that system. And, and I, I saw that with a man named Aaron Noble, who was the police chief for. um 15 or 20 years, I'm not exactly sure uh, the time frame, um, but he did not like me. Um, we didn't get a, get along very well. And that went back to the D.A.R.E. program where he came into the schools and I didn't want to participate. Uh, I've never really liked police officers, although I will tell you that Mo Wilbur is a former police officer. So it's kind of a little ironic, but, you know, it's, it's really about the person. Why don't you like police officers? Um, I, I just don't find them. Uh, first of all, uh, police officers cooperate with each other and they're the biggest gang in America. And they tend to uh, not treat people correctly if they have a problem with you. And as you mentioned, uh, if you if you were to say that, you know, Matt Melvin is a really bad person, 
that your credibility would would outweigh mine. Right. Yeah, I, I would say this though, Matt. Um, you know, I, I think it's as unreasonable to say that uh, to group police activity together as it would be to group homosexuals in their actions. Um, I would agree with I, you. I, I agree with you. However, I can tell you when I'm driving down the road and there's a police officer behind me, and I and not doing anything wrong, I will get off the road and let that police officer go. And that will never go away, sir. It, despite the, you know, the time lapse and, and being, you know, making better decisions in my life, that fear uh, will never go away. You know, it's, and here's another interesting phenomenon, Matt. <laughs> uh, very interesting are different perspectives, and I can really understand what you're saying. Uh, you know, and my interactions with police are wholly the opposite. Um, I just remain always respectful. I think I got pulled over. Actually, it would have been eight years ago now. Uh, it was when my, right before my daughter was born. And um, the cop let me go. <laughs> you know, my registration was expired. I was just courteous. And uh, he saw my veteran sticker and, and I got a pass. You probably would not have been treated that way. And Never. And what's interesting that... Even, sir, if I had a support the police... Um, bumper sticker, which I wouldn't put, because um, I think that that would be hypo hypocritical for me to put when I don't feel that way. However, as soon as they run my record, I would not get any benefit chances no. at all. But you know, here's the thing, Matt, here's what I wanted to share with you, and I'm not being judgmental in saying this. You ever heard the saying that people that are afraid of dogs are three times more likely to get bit? And I, I've seen that phenomena. The dogs um, and I think it's kind of, and it's a good analogy, what's happening in your case, and please, I'm not right. saying that people are dogs, right. but um, the dogs uh, sense that, that fear, that anxiety, right. and they right. interpret it as a threat. Right. The same thing's happening with the cops. I was never a cop, but like I said, working in government, um, you get a sense for things that are out of place very quickly, both in terms of asking questions, in terms of stories, that's why I'm asking you the probing questions that I'm asking let me right. just make sure this adds up here because, you know, if, if this one piece is missing, that changes the whole context of the story. Um, and I'm going to get to one of those points in a second. But um, if, if I was a cop, like I said, I wasn't, but I, I would think that me coming up behind somebody and them pulling over would actually probably cause me to stop. It would make me suspicious of what you were doing. Um, so interestingly, I think uh, and, I, and I'm guessing from the book that some of your actions were things you're trying to avoid, believe it or not, not through no fault of yours. And I'm not saying that the police should be treating you that way. Um, um, but I think it's all being misinterpreted. I think you're misinterpreting the best action. They're misinterpreting what's going on. And it's causing you a, a huge right. load of problems. Right. Um, you said something. I, I asked you uh, earlier if you had had any um, dealings with the police prior to that first arrest. You said no, I believe, other than and traffic, things like that. But the chief of police knew you, you just said, from the D.A.R.E. program. So there was right. a relationship there. It was a negative relationship, yeah. yes. And yeah. there was also a time that he claimed that I hit his car when I didn't. Um, and he... But let's go back to the D.A.R.E. thing a second. Sure. Um, what got his back so up about that? I mean, this is a school program. You're in school. He's a cop. Like, how does this get off the rails so badly? I, I, I'm not sure I know, sir. That was in 98. Right, so that right. was a long, long time ago. Um, and I'm not sure. Um, but I can tell you that I was constantly harassed by police. Um, One of the stories that sticks out in my mind, Matt, 
in in this regard just to wrap this up we'll move on um you tell the story how you, i think you were singing in jail and the other inmates got you were what were you singing country music right yes and and was this mostly blacks in the in the jail with you correct yeah so here comes this white guy this white gay guy right and here's another thing demographically speaking i know many you know many uh uh, black Americans that have really strong negative feelings about homosexuality. Um, and so you came into this environment and, to, and you're and you're just singing, right? Because you try to be a happy guy. But they didn't like that. Correct. You know, and 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 you were really mistreated. And that's just one of the little stories right? for, for the for the for the, the capital crime of singing some country music. Right. They basically uh, you know, verbally assaulted you and, and, and really gave you a hard time over that. Right. Right. Are you still perplexed today? Do you understand why they got so riled up about that? Doesn't make that you can't understand it, can you? No. And I think, you know. To try to understand other people would. You can't always understand other people. Yeah. Uh, you don't know where they came from. Uh, you don't know what kind of upbringing they had. And I think a, a key piece of this is that the lack of empathy, you know, it, until you've walked in that man's shoes, you know what that man has been through. You have absolutely no right to give them advice or to try to true. get them to do something true, else. True, true, true. But let me just say this. Um, occasionally, I even listen to a little old school rap, uh, not often, but I don't particularly care for rap music. And if I pull up to the gas station occasionally, not so much where we live, but occasionally uh, there will be somebody there with the windows rolled down with a very obnoxious car speaker with music blaring that it doesn't even matter what kind of music is that, that I don't like. And it irritates me. Um, it angers me. Um, have I ever thought boy, I could knock that person in the head? Oh, yeah, it's crossed my mind. Would I do it? No, I wouldn't assault somebody over something like that. Um you know, in the right conditions, could I see myself saying something to them? Yeah. And the reason is, it's because it's kind of, even though it's not a crime, they're not doing anything wrong, they're pulling up playing the radio like anybody could, um, because it's obnoxious and it irritates the people around them. Um, and like I said, I, I don't agree with the way you were treated as a result, but I can see the nature of the problem, I think, a little differently than you can. And I say all that, that's just a point to the book is just a fascinating read, Matt, to where you've opened up a really genuinely... Uh, your thought process and what was happening to you. And I don't know that everybody will be able to put it together. Hopefully I've, I've helped with a couple of the pieces there. Um, and there was also, uh, I'd like to bring this up. Um, I was constantly journaling while I was in prison, which is a big no-no. No, no. I was journaling about everything that was going on, kind of like- Matt, uh, let me back up a second. I sure. can tell you right now, even something you're doing right now. So uh, I have a history of working in government. Um, and I've seen it happen where people would get their names published. I saw where uh, YouTube videos were done. I did have it happen to me uh, on social media where a disgruntled uh, resident um, was unhappy with me and was making some very egregious uh, Facebook posts. Um, you know, there's not a lot, a lot of lines of work where you get subjected to that kind of thing. And, um, you know, my case, of course, just like you, I don't feel that I did anything wrong. I shouldn't have been subjected to that. And my family certainly shouldn't be subjected to that harassment. I understand your point about filing the grievances. 
And I think what I was trying to get at earlier, and I think this has been important for people to understand, I say it a lot with firearms, if you're going to, and you can't, I guess, but for people that are going to own firearms or use, uh, carry a firearm, um, you better know how to handle the situation if you ever have to use it. Because if you call the police and say, I just shot somebody, you're going to jail because that's a crime. <laughs> and you just admitted it when you called. Um, so the, the way you phrase things can make all the difference. You file on those grievances. And, you know, from what I could tell, the ones you described, you had every right in the world to file. There were valid grievances. Um, whether it was a good idea for you or not, clearly we know the answer to that and, and probably not. Um, and I could see how that would all quickly develop into a pattern. And I said that the judges and all are connected. Well, it's not that they're, they're connected uh, with super glue in a sense. And it's not to say that they always like each other and get along because that's not always what's happening. But the fact of the matter is, on some level, I don't know the system, there was a report that was taken from the prison about you and given to either the prosecutor or the, or the probation person. And, and, and in some way, that got to the judge. Yeah. And, you know, the judge, whether he agreed with it or didn't agree with it, in your case, it sounds like he did go along. But if the prison staff are saying, hey, this guy's dangerous, we don't recommend his release, he's been nothing but trouble, but blah, 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 blah even if it's complete lies for the reason I, I described right. earlier, you right. got a real problem and, and you right. suffered at that. I wonder, and, um, you know, we also saw that when I was at a halfway house in Albany, New York, and I don't know if I talked about this. Yes. Okay. Yep. Where the actual woman that ran the facility was convinced that within a year, I would be back in yep. prison trying to get to a halfway house, which she would not allow me to do. And guess what? I proved her wrong because I'm not there <laughs> and haven't applied to go back there. Good for you, Matt. I want to talk a little bit about the yin and the yang of, of you. <laughs> um, the yang would be, you say here, I've walked out of restaurants without paying a bunch of times. Every crime I've committed has been impulsive. And in that sense, um, what's the word? I'm a pathologic. You're a little bit pathological or, or what would you say? What's the word for somebody has no conscience? Um, I'm trying to think, but you, you got up and walked out. It didn't bother you one bit, did it? It didn't then it would today. Why is it bothering That's you That's the big difference. Oh, fair enough. That's good, Matt. And I wasn't being right. judgmental, but I was just kind right. of explaining. Um, but let's talk about, well, at that time you get up and walk out. It didn't bother you one bit. Correct. And why is that? Did you feel that you were owed? You just didn't care? What was your thinking? Uh, can I get away with it? It was really the, uh, the risk. thrill of getting away yes, with it. Getting gotcha, away with it. Gotcha. You know, I've talked, I, I uh, got out of it now, um, but I was a, a landlord for many years, uh, mostly commercial. Um, but we had a couple of houses that we rented as well. And uh, as a landlord, you'll see the people that um, manipulate. I had a, in one story in particular, a woman, she's a, you know, very low income, had some kids and stuff like that, and was very convincing. And I tried to help her out. And uh, I got stuck with all kinds of bills out of that. Um, and which brings me kind of to where you are now, you've been to church, and you've reexamined your conscience, and you feel differently about that kind of thing now. Am I right? Right. How so? What would you say now about walking out like that? Would you want, if you were the business owner, how would you feel if that were, were your yeah, business? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's exactly right. So you've changed your ways, which I think is incredible personal uh, journey for you. Um, but then also with, with your way of thinking and, and that, that same um, disregard, if you will, or impulsiveness, 
in some cases serves you really well. You say, I'm an excellent salesman. I've, I've always been number one or number two salesman in whatever field I'm working in. Why? Why? What do you credit that to? Why are you such a good salesman? Uh, I'm quickly able to build rapport, find commonality with the person I'm talking to, and I don't take the rejection personally. I've been rejected so much. I've dealt with so much rejection in my own life, from family to schools to being bullied to um, being bullied by the Shelburne police officer to being bullied by some of the mental health providers to being bullied by um, the courts. Uh, that it really doesn't phase me. Um, and I've seen that when, you know, I was out trying to support the Trump campaign and my favorite people to go and knock on the doors were Clinton supporters and big, huge signs out front trying to figure out why they would want to vote for such a terrible candidate. It's fascinating, Matt. I was at a um, Doug Mastriano campaign event for governor. Um, I've gotten to know Doug a little bit. Um, him and his wife been to quite a few events with him. Uh, I'm on the uh, board of a of an organization. We gave him an award, so I had some connections with him. And I went to this campaign event, and it was kind of a rah rah thing. It was out of my area. I really went just to support the effort. Um, but anyway, there was protesters out front, and you know, I kind of got bored with this. I said, I'd rather go talk to the protesters, and that's exactly what I did. And I had a far more engaging conversation with them. Um, I have that that same fascination. Um, uh, it's really cool, Matt. Uh, you know, it, it's really a shame to me what you've had to go through. I think that, um, you know, the, the, that impulsiveness, um, you know, manifests itself to people looking at it as, as selfishness. And people have a really hard time processing it and how to deal with it. I'm really glad to hear the changes that you've made, you know, uh, seeing uh, personal development and the topic of personal development is something that's dear to me. I, I've written a motivational book um, and it's something that I talk about occasionally on the podcast. I like encouraging people to, to improve and do better. And it's something that I constantly strive for too. And uh, so I'm glad that things have turned a, a bit of a corner for you. I've uh, also been part of a company or uh, organization called the crucible, which really helps Christian folks that are struggling uh, to be able to really put the shadow, you know, the things that they're hiding, whether it's, you know, confidence or things that they don't want other people to see. Insecurity is a huge one. And be able to get those out there because the more we hide those things, the more we can't become, a, a, we can't better ourselves. Those, those shadows are holding us all back. And we all have them. Uh, if anybody were to say, I don't have them, they would be a liar. Matt, how do you think that people around you could best help you? And I don't know the best example, but you know, take the, the music scenario or a situation similar to that. You know, how could somebody approach you differently that would, would help the situation as opposed to what you've gotten in the past? So for, you know, in the past sounds like, you know, just using that story, you know, people would harass you, threaten you, sometimes worse. But if I came up to you and, and said, Matt, the, the music is annoying everybody. Can you just please stop singing? And, uh, you know, so that everybody else can, would you respond to that? What, 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 what would be best? I could respond to that better, yes, than being harassed or intimidated or sent threatening letters under the um, 
prison doors. Mm. You think you're going to go back to prison or you think it's done and behind you? I'm never going back to prison. Great. What If you could change one thing about the, the criminal justice system, what would it be? Uh, the ability to, for people that had been convicted of crimes to have the ability to have their record expunged, which today is virtually impossible because so many offenses, and I'm not, there are certain offenses that I deem that are not, should not be uh, able to be expunged. However, white collar crimes, uh, financial crimes um, should be an, uh, be able to be uh, expunged. However, that is I think I would agree with you, first of all, broadly speaking, that there needs to be a path to success. And that's the failure of the system. Correct. When you get out and, you you know, in many cases, not in your case, but in many prison stories, it's generational, right? Right. Um, and everybody you know is convicted of a crime, right? L.A., Chicago, every major city has this phenomena going on. And so now you go to prison, and there's, there's really uh, such little chance of getting out of that washing machine because of the rules, right? right. You, can't, you, can't, you can't stay on probation if you can't get a job, but you can't get a job because of your record. Um, you can't live with anybody who has a record, but everybody you know has a record. So now you have no place to live. You can't get a job. And so you can't be on probation. And and, and by default, you end up, and even, you know, even if you're, you know, if you're uh, really trying to do your best, right? Right. And you get out and you say, you know what, I'm I'm just, I'll go live in a tent or whatever. I'll get, I'll live in the the cheapest rooming house I can find. I'll walk 25 miles to my grocery store bagging job, making $10 an hour. Even if you do all that, the temptation to sell some car parts or take a little package across town for an extra 50 bucks. The temptation of that is huge and and people just get, get sucked into it. Um, I think I will also tell you that I've talked to some people that have served as juror members. Um, and one of the pastors that I became friends with that I met behind bars told me that he served on a jury in which an individual said, um, you know, a member, a juror member said, let's just get this guy convicted. I've got to go back to work. So the mentality is to, that the person is guilty. Um, and whenever somebody is charged with a crime, the government has unlimited resources and unlimited amount of money to go after that person. So even if you are a rich person like George Soros and you are a defendant, the, the, gov- you, the government still has more resources and more money if they want to go after you. Unlimited resources. And in the, in the federal system, the conviction rate is 96%. Yes, it really, nobody walks away from that unscathed. Matt, it's a, right. it's a fascinating story. And uh, I think it's a, it's a book worth reading, both entertaining and educational. Uh, why should somebody buy the book? If you're a person that knows anybody that's been in prison, if you have a family member or friend who is making bad decisions, whether they're trying marijuana or whether they're speeding, uh, this is the path that I took. I was one of those speeders that started off with just some 
speeding tickets. And that manifested into serving in prison. So all those signs led to the, the revelation that this may happen. And it did. So I think it's a good book. Um, and it will really sh outline the, the real problems with the criminal justice system. Matt, it's a fascinating book. You did a great job writing it. Bully Behind Bars, a gay Christian Trump supporter goes to prison by Matthew Melvin. Matt, it was great having you on. I enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to having you back sometime. Thanks so much. Thank you.